Hello, and welcome to Conversations with Kari. I'm your host, Kari Feiler. In today's episode, I'm talking with my good friend and book club partner, Evan Maeda. We talk about Carl Sagan's book, The Varieties of Scientific Experience. We touch on the reality of God, the illusion of God, the vagaries, benefits, and pitfalls of religious and scientific thinking in turn, the vital importance of reason, and other topics. I would like to remind you that this show is supported on Patreon. You can find it at patreon.com forward slash Kari underscore filer. I hope you enjoy the show. Two by four and a tarp and we're done. That's it. He kind of ended on nuclear war. I I was so surprised at the way he pivoted into nuclear war and stuck there. Well, I wasn't surprised because remember when this was when he gave these lectures and when he was alive, nuclear war was seen as you know the biggest threat of. That's true. That's true. I always remember listening to my teacher when I was in elementary school and how she talked about when she was younger. They were doing drills in schools to get underneath desks. They were like, you know, advertising places to buy for fallout shelters. Mm. Um, you know, the threat of nuclear war and the Cold War was like a huge That's fucking true. global anxiety That's that true. people were going through. And I think it was further exacerbated in the science community because you had it seen as America, not America's, humanity's great invention. Mm. And it would absolutely be a source of humanity's great destruction. And I definitely think that that dichotomy or that, you know, I, irony wasn't lost on intellectuals so i think it absolutely became like a talking point of the times yeah and they were still reeling from the cold war uh, as as you just said so and they and they lived that get under the jet under the desk stuff drill stuff so that does make mm. sense that does make sense <clears throat> yeah i was kind of disappointed because it didn't feel relevant to us by that as for well. us it's a little bit more abstract but for him in 1985 it mattered and he, he only absolutely. talked about it because it mattered it just probably mattered to him as being such a personal experience. Yeah, and I, the, he, there was also a section. I'm not gonna. I didn't write it down um, because I just. But I remember thinking, the argument was that if we, if we look to, gosh, what was the argument? The argument was something like, if we look to the stars, and then admit yeah if we look to the stars then that will give us space to imagine humanity's potential more fully if we if more of us sat down and thought about the perspective from other planets and we get into europa and and what that would mean for us as a species and we could thrive that much more and i remember Mm. thinking all right, I just thought explicitly, okay, that's a nice argument for me and maybe some people reading the book, but that's not that's not going to move masses, right? Masses of people are not going to move because you said, we just need to think about it from a higher level. If that was true, it would move masses. That argument's been around. <laughs> that argument's always been around. It doesn't but move wasn't people. This, wasn't this like a lecture given with like PowerPoint slides and everything? So I kind of saw, I know what you're saying. And it was in I'm the context kind of... of, of as an argument against religious thinking. Um, so that matters that, that, that this was an argument to replace traditional God type thinking. Uh, and I just didn't buy yes. it. Yes. Yeah. But he was, I think he was using that as a speech writing tool because mm-hmm. in a book you would want to create the most 
what am I trying to say here? When you're writing a book and you're writing down your arguments there, um, they have to be extremely substantial because people are going to go back, reread certain chapters, reread certain parts, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. When you're giving a speech, you're going to have to assume that some parts are lost. People are going to get distracted, right? You're going to have a two or three hour lecture. There's going to be inevitably some kind of, you know, um, marketing essentially that you have to do in order to make it the most palatable for people to enjoy for two or three hours. Mm, mm. I think that his use and discussion about all of what the first 20, 30 minutes of the book is not 20, 30 minutes, but the first few chapters of the book, we're all talking about how we're star stuff and how stars are formed and how mm. the great patterns mm. in the cosmos and how they reflect down to us. I think that's the context it was given in. I just spent half an hour of our three-hour lecture telling you about how amazing and intricate and beautiful the stars are. And then I spent a little bit of time kind of translating that back to us. And now at the end, as a nice little bow tie on everything, I'm going to tell you to look back up at those stars. Remember those Mm. 30 minutes that I talked about in the beginning? Mm. And under that guise and context, I think it would make a different world. I think that's the way Carl meant it. And under that, I'm more forgiving of it. He did but mean it that way. And I should actually give more more credit where credit's due because this is an idea. It's an idea that I hold as well. It's an idea that I argue as well. But I need to give credit that he was partly inventing these ideas, right? These weren't popular. These were ideas that he was helping come up with, right? And so I can take it for granted that, of course, if we think about the stars and, and imagine our view from space, we'll get better. Well, it's not. It wasn't, of course, in 1985. <laughs> it wasn't, of course, when he said it. People, he was, he was saying it. And people were going, ah, I don't know, Carl. That's kind of crazy. I'm gonna send you a photo of something that's hanging in my room. Give me ten seconds. Hold on, hold on. Okay. Fucking jungle gym in here with all the goddamn wires. But I just texted you something. So that is my favorite comic strip, Calvin and Hobbes. If you're familiar with it, it was printed in like the 70s and 80s. And that's one of my favorite scenes from one of my favorite strips. Let's see. If people sat outside and looked at the stars each night, I'd bet they'd live a lot differently. It's the exact same thing. It's the exact Mm -hmm. same sentiment. I definitely don't know if Carl Sagan was maybe the first to kind of inject it, but I absolutely think that it was a common trope that was thrown out there but in the 60s and 70s. I just, thought, and I just thought of a counter counter argument to that, which is what did they do in the in the Middle Ages? Weren't they sitting outside and staring at the stars every night? Yeah, but I think the argument now is that we're, we're, dest- we're destroying our planet and destroying our home because, you know, we don't have the privilege of back in those times not being able to make that much of a difference. Back <laughs> in those times, we were just looking at survival. Now, survival is guaranteed unless it's by our own hand, essentially. So, but I don't see, I don't see how having access to a starry night. Let me think. What side of the argument am I making here? Um, I actually see us reverting into more tribalism uh, going forward and, and more troubling type of tribalism. Um, and so I guess I'm thinking in, in 2021 appeals to, to stars I don't see being powerful um, here here soon. Yeah. I think that's fair. I yeah. think people are... I think maybe it's just... Uh, no, I think it's a, a powerful appeal. I'm not saying it's not a powerful appeal. I think it is a powerful appeal. I just don't see it being popularly powerful. 
<laughs> well, in the near totally future. Be, yeah. Yeah. I think it's like the same, it's the same concept of stop and smell the roses or, you know, just take a nice something quiet like walk. That, like, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. all along that same vein. You just have to. Roses ain't going to pay my rent. Exactly. Yeah. See, you just got to find a way to like translate it for the particular listener that's going to be the most impactful. But the common vein of taking more time to be aware of how things came to be and how things will play out Mm. allow you to kind of have a dose of wisdom in that sense. True. True. And what he was what he was pushing against, uh, you know, the scientific religious experiments experiment. Actually, I can bring up a quote. Let's see. Because I wrote it down and then I had to write down. I didn't know that he was going to go in on Christianity after I before I wrote that. Because <laughs> I, I wrote down something that had to do with Christianity. Here it is. It's on 205. Okay. Let's see here. So 205. Did you press record now, by the way? Since uh-huh. This? Yeah. Okay, good. Yeah. Good, good, good. Let's see. Uh, 205. I'm there now. What's the line? 203. It is, it seems to me. First paragraph. First big paragraph at a 205. Oh, he says it twice. Uh, it's, it seems to me and then or anything else. It seems to me that this is the issue above all others. It's a, let's see. It seems to me this is the issue above all others on which religions can be calibrated, can be judged, because certainly the preservation of life is essential if the religion is to continue or if the religion is to continue or anything else. So I wrote down that that we are the center of our own religion and Christianity does a disservice to us by demeaning us in the ways it does. And so what I meant with that, and I, and he goes on into Christianity for the next page and a half. And I didn't, (laughs) I didn't know he was going to do that for the next three pages even. Um, And so in, in this context, he was talking about how religious thinking is very, you know, it's necessarily transcendent. It's, it's out of this world. It's beyond this world. It's the origin of the world, all this. Um, And so what I wrote was that, we actually can have religions and I think we'll have religions that are human centered, but they'll still be religious because they will be outside of the realm of what's falsifiable. Uh, I think what's, I think what, what is religious cannot be falsified. If it could be falsified, it's scientific. So the God of the gaps kind of thing, a God of the gaps. Sure. Yeah, yeah, and that's where God lives in the gaps, right? And there are there will always be gaps. Uh, we aren't we aren't going to know the truth. Uh, we're always going to be seeking it and pursuing it. And while we're seeking it and pursuing it, there will be religions uh, around people who believe the same things, because that's how we seem to operate. Um, I would guess that there will always be religions only because there, there have always been. It seems to be part of our deeply part of our DNA. Uh, it's not not that I want these things. It's just that that seems to be part of us. And, and it's not a part of us that I think needs to be. Or let me say let me say it the reverse way. Actually, I think there's a huge baby in that bathwater. I think that religious thinking, when described as the type of thinking that 
allows and encourages individuals to look at the stars and be made stronger. I think mm. that's important. Uh, and it, and it, it, it stands on believing things that are not falsifiable and believing them deeply uh, and, and using them to, to give my heart strength and moments of weakness and using them. You know, I, I believe that prayer is powerful for the prayer, for the person praying. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. You know, but there was this joke in the book the where it said uh the you know, it, thing, right? yeah, yeah. prayer work they they be they pay you to do it uh <laughs> yeah that's good that's good so I, you know prayer prayer doesn't move doesn't move Porsches but it does change hearts especially the heart of the person praying yeah I think well there's two things there I think maybe we can the first thing is to kind of make declarations. And when I make declarations, I just say kind of put our foot down Mm. on some definitions and Mm. say that religion is the kind of man-made structure that tries to imbue itself with the good human spirituality that we say is the bathwater and, you know, or excuse me, the spirituality would be the bathwater and religion is, holy shit, I can't speak. Religion is the bathwater, baby is spirituality. We don't want to throw out the baby. And so... I think maybe we I think there's more to the baby. Terms. I think some of the I think some of the principle and the practice and the ritual, I think that's part of the baby too. But I think that that would come about in any religion or spiritual yes. practice. Yes. So I have to say that that's part of the spirituality and not part of the religion. Religion is just a way of practicing that desire for ritual and, you know, that lizard brain stuff. I'm thinking about Tolstoy's definition of religion and the popular definition of religion. Uh, I I don't so and and let's so let's think about in thinking about religion. Let's think about the new religion. So let's think about woke religion. Let's think about anti-racist oh, religion. Um, okay. That's is religious. It religion or is it oh, absolutely, absolutely, it's religious. Uh, okay. It's yeah, sure, it's sure, religious. Sure. Every time you say, every time you say he him, it's religious. My pronouns are that's religious. That's a religious practice. Uh, okay, I'll give it to you. Sure, I can see it. Yeah. So using it that way, uh, the way that we so and it's the same. They form a belief that's not falsifiable, uh, and then you wrap this core belief or the set of core beliefs in practices that that signal to other practitioners every time i go up hi my name is kari and my pronouns are he him i have now signaled that i am part of this group and that i believe that racism is ultimately the root root rot of this country um and that's that's effective that's effective for building communities that's effective for for building bonds and people have always used these practices to build communities and bonds and i don't see why they would stop anytime soon um that's the same as any kind of tribalism, right? It doesn't. I mean, religion is a methodology of dividing tribes. Not necessarily, not. because you can have a tribe that is explicitly about some material, right? So what makes so so every yes, every religion is a tribe, but not, not every tribe is a religion, right? right. Every mm-hmm. every religion because the religion has to be about something unfalsifiable, something transcendent, right? Uh, that that's what makes it a religion. Other than that, it's just a group. Other than that, other than that, it's a, it's a company. It's a business. <laughs> yeah, I love yeah. it. Hundred percent. I yeah. love it. 
So that was I, I and I like that, and I was, and what the what the Christians have done, what we can do with our future religions, what we should do with our future religions, is have religions around religions that that celebrate humanity. So we should have a poop religion and a fart religion and a sex religion and an ejaculate religion and and a sneezing religion like in uh in hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy we we you know mm -hmm. we should have these religions that are that celebrate the human body because and the human existence even the flaws even the parts of it that we think are flawed and disgusting because this is us this is all we are uh, and this is to carl's point you know and this is the point that he makes repeatedly throughout the book this is all we know all we know for sure is us so we really should be celebrating us with every ounce we have. That's kind of sounds like paganism and hedonism. And yeah, it's, I mean, I'm not saying that that's what it is, but I think, it, I think that is it. Yeah. Yeah. Western culture has absolutely like labeled it and made an active effort to steer away from it. Mm. And it's now only in these times. And as part of Terrence McKenna's idea of the archaic revival is definitely coming back. And so I'm kind of with you in that sense that, that sort that sense of spirituality will have to be the guiding light it's just i don't know we humans shoot themselves in the foot with it on the way up like that's the same thing as carl was saying about nuclear warfare so i definitely think it's uh what is it is, is this a tragedy of this isn't a tragedy of the commons this is just simply humans as a group and the way society or social mechanics work between large groups of people i'm not, I'm not sure where the gap is but something's falling through the cracks and there's got to be a way to make what is it what am i trying to say make wisdom more pervasive mm. to individuals or make wisdom more accessible to where individuals feel empowered to like practice it because i don't i don't think it's a matter of the knowledge being available i think it's just a matter of people feeling empowered or wanting to partake and i'm not sure where that where that gap is but there's a gap there that needs to be bridged I think it's in the it's in calling out the specifics of the religions, as Sam Harris has has done so well for the past t fifteen years. Um, so when we're talking, when he when Carl talks about that one higher up who is a practicing Christian and could stop the inevitable violence from happening, but believes in his heart of hearts that this might be the beginning of the end and the second coming and then is much more hesitant to intervene in case this is actually the manifestation of god's ultimate will this is and so the person doesn't want to stop the conflagration because he thinks it's it thinks it's revelation um, right, right. and so what we should do in that moment and moments like that is criticize that specific tenet that would have a person stop violence and uh, or have a person stop stopping violence or stop themselves from intervening uh, in, in death because they think it's part of the, the ultimate ultimate goal here. Um, the goal is not death. Right. And so we should have religions yeah. that say, no, no, no. The goal is like Jainism. I think Jainism is a religion like this, right, where the goal is all life. Right. If, if you step on a cricket, you've done a grievous harm. Don't do it. All life is precious. All of it. Every moment of it. Um, more religions like that and so we don't have to pick on or or i should say we can separate those aspects that demean human life from the aspects that celebrate human life and calling for the world or hoping that the world ends hoping that the world is coming to an end is a hugely demeaning feature uh <laughs> 
Yeah, yeah, but those but those individuals didn't think that they were thinking the world was coming to an end. They, they don't the think the world was that, coming to salvation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They yeah. Don't they don't think, think they're demeaning. No, they don't think that. But that, that, I'm I'm criticizing it outright. It is demeaning. Yeah, they don't think and that. I, I agree with that completely. But are you kind of worried though that with the many thousands of flavors and local regionality variances, I don't even know if regionality is a word, but I'm using it. Any of those local variances in religion can create essentially a whack-a-mole situation where this one county happens to believe this one certain tenant and this other county right next to them happens to believe in three other tenants. And if you're really going to start nitpicking each individual tenant, Mm -hmm. it seems like you're going to be... Yeah, whack-a-mole, it's almost going to be impossible to ever get any kind of head start, which, not head start, make any kind of headway, which is why I sort of am sympathetic to the grandiose but milquetoast sort of asks, like, look up at the stars more each night, because you want to make changes that are going to be coming at an intrinsic level, because people are making these actions at an extremely intrinsic level um spirituality afterlife uh, the concept of higher purpose all of those things ring to the center of our core as much as almost anything else in my opinion and so you have to really understand that you need to ring that same bell or else you're always going to lose out or you're always going to be fighting against and maybe i'm kind of coming at this from a get more flies with honey sort of perspective but I think that there's great value in, you know, Sagan's sort of approach of a lot more humility and a lot more um, empathy maybe is the right word. I'm not sure. I'm not sure what it is. People describe the way Carl Sagan talks as, you know, confident but humble and not talking down to you. And I definitely think that that methodology has to be the way that change is made because again spirituality and the beliefs that people have are so tied to their individual identity and they act from an intrinsic place that they intuitively feel is strong it's very hard to overcome something like that with a logical appeal it has to come from that same bell it doesn't have to be overcome uh what i'm doing is is simultaneously celebrating the the milk toast and the and the grandiose by saying honor all life all of it no matter what uh and point and and calling those actually granular and discreet because if you say look up at the stars this is grandiose and milk toast how can you not accept that and i say no 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 look down at the ground and we can yell at each other <laughs> For three days right. about looking up at the stars and looking down at the ground. Uh, right. and that's fine. I, I That's beautiful humanity to me. If you've got one person standing in the field and another person standing on a porch and they're yelling at each other, one saying, look up, and the other one saying, look down, and nah, nah, you're an idiot, nah, and they're just yelling at the top of their volume. <laughs> I'm I'm loving it. I'm, I'm warm in my stomach at that. Uh, because as long as both of those individuals, at the end of the day, go, See you next week. Yes. See you next week. Okay. To me, that's it. More of that. Yes. More of that. You call what I call grandiose milk toast and I'll call what you call commonplace extraordinary. And we can, we can fight and we can have verbal fights until the end of the day, as long as physical safety is held at sanctity. I don't know though that 
maybe it's a matter of culture and culture can change to be accommodating for this but i don't think that that's an established boundary i feel like you and i kind of have like a unique relationship in the sense that like you and i can definitely you know verbally argue and have a disagreement very firmly about the way things should be held but you're damn right i want to pick up the phone next week and talk to you of course so you know there's an understanding i don't necessarily know if that understanding or um, patience or that desire for a greater knowledge is as pervasive and as important to the general population as other things like ego or um, the n- desire of not wanting to look stupid, which I guess is just another variety of ego. But, you know, I think really, yeah, the more I say this, it all just comes down to ego. I don't know if the greater populace or the greater population has the ability to subvert those things for their ego. They don't have to. There's no subversion at all. So the 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 preservation of your neighbor's great grandchild is 100% an operation of the ego because my neighbor's granddaughter might marry my grandson. Then my neighbor's great grandchild is my great grandchild. I don't know that that's not going to happen. There's no there's no functional real difference between my long-term descendants and yours and so the preservate the sanctity of life the idea of the sanctity of life is ego incarnate in operation Mm -hmm. this this is a a human-centered religion that's fair with ego in tow i don't think you i don't think you have to get rid of your ego um i guess i'm more thinking about like the ego that appears when people feel publicly insecure or socially awkward or not wanting to feel dumb and how people don't think about these things think about things in the most pragmatic of ways because pragmatism may lead to their own loss um i know that i've had great ideas i thought that was always a software level but maybe i'm wrong well, it could be at software level, but in OBS at the software level, it tells you that it, for them, it's also at the file level. Yeah. Interesting. So in I wonder o- if it's because the compression has to be done at the end of the recording process with an MP4. Could be. And if it's that other uncompressed file format, then it's just transcoding it, you know, one to one as it happens. Could be. Could be. Uh, so it got it. So it got it. It, it didn't miss anything, uh, except it upsets me to no end. <laughs> <laughs> I get that. Don't worry. $2,400 for this freaking thing and it crashes three times a day. Jeez, oh, geez, dude. Yeah, that's. I would be, I would be mad. <laughs> okay, well, let's go into so, some more quotes. Or you're more quotes. Me? What's your quote? Goodness, dude. I actually have a lot. Looking at this, I have one, two, three, four, nice. five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Terrific. Okay, cool. Um, first one is on 90. 90. Uh, it looks like the paragraph ending with life. Okay, let's I see. need to take better notes. I should have taken better notes if we are going to do a podcast, but bear with me here. We'll just have to... You're fine. Limp on through here. We should do a uh, clubhouse. Are you inside of a clubhouse? No, I don't have clubhouse I don't, I'm not in it. You have to be invited, I think. Yeah, you do. We got to get an invite. 90 is a picture. Yeah, it is a picture, huh? 80? Maybe. 91? Uh, 80 has a text, but I don't see ending in life. 
I think we talked about this the first time. We must have, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I remember this having the same issue that we landed on the picture. Oh, shit. Okay. Well, that goes to show how much I'm uh, paying attention for. Okay, so my next one then is 130 Aliens as Saviors, the whole section. Let's see here. Aliens as Saviors. Yeah, that's a freaking note and a half, huh? One thirty. More rarely now that we require. I don't see aliens at all. I remember this being a concept that I was thinking of. Because I remember it was like an obsession with UFOs, and he was also talking about something with saviors. And I, I remember having this like it, shoot, it is in this section, but that exact phrase is in here. No, 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 it's not. The okay. exact, that exact phrase was something that came from my brain, and I was hoping that I could just piece this together right now. But I should have taken better notes. It's not coming to me. I remember thinking this idea about something that like we were always waiting for an other to come and help us, whether it be God or something like that. Uh, so I thought maybe the crazy idea and fix, Oh, that's what it might've been. Maybe the fixation with aliens is essentially that same exact concept mm. that we're waiting for. Some religions are waiting for an all powerful being to come down, descend upon us and grant its blessing and help us solve all of our problems. Mm. It kind of sounds like the exact same story of a super technological advanced race making contact with us and helping us become an interplanetary species mm. to me they kind of seem like of all the same flavor and i think maybe i was just trying to draw draw that parallel really explicitly yeah i can dig it i can dig it it's so easy it's so easy to unify against the the other um and as long as people have to treat other people as the other then that's their enemy but if there were some common other some absolute other outside of the species then we would have a common enemy easily recognizable it's true uh there's another great common Hobbes quote um it was right after their house got broken into the dad is up at you know we hours in the morning can't sleep and the wife asks what's wrong and he just says you always imagine that these things are going to happen to somebody else but you're somebody else to somebody else. And I feel like that's one of those grandiose milk toast lessons that I hope people can take and learn that that perspective, I think might teach a lot of empathy, which might do a lot of good. But again, look up at the stars, grandiose milk toast might teach a lot of empathy. It might teach a lot of good, but how many people are actually going to pick it up? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, ideas, carry that's exactly how ideas carry so for me and you it's a phrase that we say that we picked up from culture and then for our kids it'll be the same some phrase that they say that they picked up from culture and and that's how ideas transmit through the spoken word and, and talking to each other and so and many many ideas are contained in these simple phrases simple and resonant phrases i dig it i dig it too man what's your next quote what you got i want to ask so I definitely see aliens as enemies and then us being saved by having a common enemy. Is that what you meant? No, I meant it as like, I think, I truly think that as part of the alien culture, you know, there's a lot of different flavors of this, but mm. I think a big one of them is that aliens are looking to make contact with us and waiting for us to be technologically advanced enough to join everybody else uh -huh. in a sense uh, -huh. uh right the galactic federation or whatever yeah so you can definitely see that 
So in that case, if we now, are you saying you think that's happening, or you know that that's an idea that gets around? I know it's an idea that gets around, yeah. and I know that it's um, pervasive and strong and not French. I would say when yeah, you're talking no, about people not. who are thinking about aliens. Yeah, totally. So for people who are thinking about aliens, I'm trying to draw the parallel between those people waiting for the aliens to come and have us join this galactic civilization and get all this great technology benefit from that as people who are also waiting for God to come down and bestow his heavenly blessing and bring heaven to earth. Mm. It seems like the same kind of archetype story where mm. a great and powerful being from some place that we can't even imagine makes contact with us in a literal descent whether it be a descent from heaven down to our you know terra firma or descent from other dimensions of space down to our terra firma mm. it descends down makes contacts with us and brings and elevates humanity's global existence to a better time and place i think that that uh i don't think that that i don't think that it's a coincidence that those two stories are so pervasive in terms of what people can believe I, th I guess that's what I'm trying to say is not, it is just draw, par draw the explicit parallel to those stories and mm. show how I think they're maybe different sides of the same coin. Makes sense to me. Makes sense to me. People are, are waiting on a, just a savior. So this is, this is waiting on a savior generally, right? So this is, this is exactly. the concept mm -hmm. of waiting on a savior it can be your brother. It could be your mother. It could be your, it could be anybody, right? It could be any, any, mm -hmm. any, some, some, some white knight. Uh, you know, if you're a woman, it could be a man. If you're a man, it could be a woman. If you're a man, it could be a man. If you're a woman, it could be a woman. It could be anything, exactly. right? Exactly. Uh, just some other entity, some other, some other conscious being to come and say, oh, I'll, I got you. I'll show you how to live. Uh, guess but what? Not only hey, <laughs> But a, but not only conscious being, but a conscious being that's smarter, stronger, has more technology, can make your life or the and the people who you love and care about and the people around you, everybody's life life significantly better. In all of those savior stories, you know, even a white knight comes and whisks you away to a better place where you're able to be better for those around you. It's I, I'm totally in agreement with you. I think it's all the same flavor. So that's actually uh, has deep resonance with the quote where where Carl quotes uh, Dostoevsky and he says, so long as man remains free, he strives for nothing so incessantly and so painfully as to find someone to worship. Right. Yes, exactly. Yes. Yeah. Yes. yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm just thinking now, do I find myself seeking to worship uh, any people I think I, I think do anybody yeah anybody seeking for truth as hard as we do is looking for something to worship but here's what Hoping. I do I make sure and I don't fully worship any one person so I there's there are people that I worship quote-unquote worship Tupac Frederick Nietzsche Sam Harris Jordan Peterson my uncle my grandfather there are you know there's there's a whole list of people and I don't call I wouldn't of course say that I worship I, I wouldn't say that I worship any of those people but I admire them all for different reasons um, right. and they're all flawed and they're all admirable simultaneously uh, and I don't put all my admiration in any one person uh, but that's only because I think you recognize that all humans are inevitably flawed. Yeah. If you had this idea that there was such a, you know, religious deity as Jesus Christ who walked this earth and was the embodiment of good, 
if you, you know, truly, truly believe that with your heart, you would have no problem saying that you worship Jesus Christ, right? You'd have no problem saying that you worship Jesus Christ as the God who just became human and died for our sins. Like, mm. that's kind of what I guess what I'm trying to say is that the only reason why you say that is because you hold the beliefs that you do. Mm. And I think mm. that if both of us were to say that if we were to have anything that we could be a thousand percent sure of and a thousand percent a source of good unequivocally we would absolutely worship that without hesitation i know that i would and i really truly feel like you would too worship something that we worship what if we could find anything whatever it may be that was unequivocally a source of good if we could find anything that was unequivocally a source of good then we would worship that thing not just a source of good, a source of good, but also um, um, something powerful. But I think we should take clear here that Dostoevsky says very clearly, so painfully as to find someone to worship, not something. Oh, someone. That's a really good point to bring up. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good point to bring up. But that might. Maybe that's only because someone is being. See, I think that's his point, is that people strive for someone to worship. This is why they love the Tony Robinsons, and this is why they love the, uh, the you know, I, I as I, after I gave my list, I re- list, I realized I didn't put Elon Musk on it. I'm a huge Elon Musk fanboy. Uh, of course, he's a flawed human with flaws. I don't think he's perfect, but I love Elon Musk. I, I admire him a lot. Um but I don't worship him. But but what Dostoevsky is charging people with is actually looking to worship the who's the guy, the preacher that said uh, that sang the COVID nineteen song. Oh shoot! Um, is it Jim fucking... something? James something? I burn this thing. Burn yeah. Kenneth Copeland. Kenneth Copeland. Kenneth Copeland. Uh, yeah. You know, be- the healing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, he burnt it. He burnt COVID. It took a year, God, but it got that guy burnt. has devil's eyes. I'm not really that religious, but holy shit, those eyes look evil. But he's excited. Like, he's excited about he's life. Excited. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's an, I'm sure he's an intense guy. Uh, yeah. So you know, and what what Dostoevsky is charging is people look for the, uh, that person, that personification, and I think that's what you were saying more or less with the aliens thing because the aliens we assume are um are going to be here in some sentient form now this is a tangent but it, it's while we're on topic have you seen debris have you been watching debris that new show mm-hmm. i don't even know what the, i haven't even heard of it debris is a new show ah don't i i don't know if i recommend it i watch daggone <laughs> every episode and every episode i curse and get mad and growl and i go why am i watching this this is so stupid and then six days later oh guess i'll watch debris Uh, (laughs) (laughs) i do it every week every week i've been doing it Uh, because the premise is so awesome so awesome sci-fi the so here's the premise there's an alien ship that broke up in orbit of the or not in, or it broke up as it was passing earth three years ago we saw it break up and for the past six months debris from the ship has been falling to earth 
So just the the logistics of that, the logistics that we see kind of it cool. yeah. as it breaks up and it takes two and a half years for the stuff to even start falling. And of course, it's fall, and now we're in the path and it's falling all over the place and we're going and inter interacting with these things and the aliens aren't even here. It's just their broken up ship or maybe there will be one amongst the wreckage and it's got all these crazy powers. The sci-fi premise for me is is thoroughly exciting. And so I go back oh, every cool. episode, but then inevitably, the show lands on it's a drama it's a sneaky drama it's kind of like it's kind of like a a cheese wrapped piece of broccoli or it's a it's a you know something that's it's a it's a here here it is it's a vitamin wrapped in a marshmallow and that you're giving to a kid and you're going here kid have this marshmallow and they go oh great and then they get into the middle and it's a fiber vitamin or whatever you know, what the hell is this and so it's drama it's really drama. That's really what they're trying to send you is is somehow your emotions interact with the alien spaceship. Give me a break. Alien spaceships interacting with human emotions? Never. Never in a billion years. <laughs> so that's what I do every episode. But uh, what we say debris. Yeah, that's why I just want to ask. Have you watched debris? So I, I have. That's my re half recommendation, half not recommendation of it. Honestly, I get a. I have a very low tolerance for that kind of stuff i'm really really cynical when it comes to any kind of theater or film or anything like that i will say and, this it's well acted it's the cinematography's top notch everything's about a top notch but i wish they weren't trying to force feed me drama <laughs> <laughs> she see it should have and nothing should felt should a little bit in my opinion nothing should feel force fed if it was that great of acting and that great of cinematography mm. and everything it would still flow for the most part but we digress We'll have, yeah. to, I'll have to check it out and give, it a, little, uh, give it a little check it out. What's your next quote, though? Let's uh, let's get that. Let's see. I starred one, so I want to go to one of those ones I starred. Who owns a favorite part? Evidence ownership. Uh, I'll skip that one. Uh, so do I. So two thirty nine. Two thirty nine. Okay. Yeah. Two thirty nine, and then maybe I even want to go to two twenty nine. Two twenty nine, okay, yeah. The Q and A, right? It's Q and A. The truth ought. So yeah, two twenty nine. The truth ought. Let me see. So it's at the very bottom. And this is just Carl's, just him defining truth. And so I said, well, this has to be made note of, right? Because uh, how many times are we going to listen to Carl so explicitly say, this is what truth is. Uh, the I'm tru so glad you pointed this out. I really am. Yeah. Please. Yeah, that's a great one. Uh, the truth ought to be logically consistent. Uh, it should not contradict itself. That is, there are some logical criteria. It ought to be consistent with what else we know. There's an additional way in which miracles run into trouble. That is an additional way in which miracles run into trouble. We know a great many things, a tiny fraction to be sure of the universe, a pitifully tiny fraction, but nevertheless, some things we know with quite high reliability. So where we are asking about the truth, we ought to be sure that it is not inconsistent with what else we know. We should also pay attention to how badly we want to believe a given contention. The more badly we want to believe it, the more skeptical we have to be. This, it involves a kind of courageous self-discipline. Nobody says it's easy. I 
think those three principles at least will winnow out a fair amount of chaff. It doesn't guarantee that what remains will be true, but at least it will be significantly diminished in the field of discourse. So I just think that's, that's important to note um, going forward uh, as we as we navigate this this new new religious space that we're navigating, I think uh, that you in if in order for you, the royal you to make a claim to truth, you really have to consider all the known phenomena that you may be contradicting. Uh, because that's going to be your number one hurdle to making a truth claim. Uh, and yeah. so it's actually easier just to spend one's time becoming more and more familiar with the things we think we know. There's a whole lot of them. <laughs> you mm-hmm. can spend all mm-hmm. of your time becoming familiar with the things we think we know. And if you just do that, you'll stop making your silly claims pretty soon. Mm. There's two things I want to add on to here. One, I wish I could make that into just like some sort of Bible verse that I can quote all the time, like Book of Carl, Chapter 3, or something, whatever, <laughs> like that shit. This is really something that I, I would actually want to like get framed. It's something like that. I think it's really cool. Two, there is a critical... I'm always going to bring up Terrence because I love that dude. Terrence McKenna talks about how we have to be aggressive in recognizing... I don't know if aggressive is the right word, but I think you might agree. Might have agreed aggressive in the sense of how we not mandate but in a sense require that our truth be at least majority rooted in personal experience and nothing else that we anything that we haven't experienced ourselves personally is essentially hearsay for lack of a better way to put it and so i the reason why I like this so much is because it invites the person, what I'm saying, this, like the quote from Carl, it really invites the individual to be a participant in the truth. Mm. It doesn't, you know, and that's where I think like the key is. And that's why I want to say that it's, you know, as powerful as the Bible verse, because it's not just enough to know about it and consider it. It's one to, it's a much bigger step to try to apply it and integrate it into the experience that you already know. And I would just want to only add the caveat of making sure that it's rooted, at least still in experience, because again, anything outside of experience is technically hearsay. And I think, I think I want to put an emphasis uh, where he says it ought not to be, So uh, an emphasis on where he says the word no, it ought not to be or it ought to be consistent with what else we know. Now, if you really pin down the word no, uh, and Mm -hmm. this is this is actually quite a sophisticated pursuit, I think you can pin down an evolutionary biologist and say, do we know that this species of salamander evolved naturally selected into this one do we know that that's true no no and he said well you know we don't know that that's what happened but we have this fossil and it dates back to this time and we have this fossil or actually the fossil doesn't date but the rocks around it date pretty regularly to the this time and so we heavily suspect that this fossil that this animal became this animal do we know it no we don't know right so you can actually press on the word no in deep into science uh, and discover that that 
we don't know the way we use the word no is with as as Carl uh, eloquently pointed to high reliability, not perfect reliability. Exactly. And I think that's what maybe I would only want to change about what you just said, which was um, I think Carl would argue it's not what we should do, but it's what's mandatory. And I definitely think that Carl tried to bring that element of it is a necessary requirement, mm, not mm. just a um, important luxury. You know what I mean? I, I mm. really feel like this this quote is so valuable because it addresses the fact that it's a requirement and necessary part of the process. You know, something to just just I thought of just right now. So there's there's God, right? And and God is the the origin of things. Now, my God is very much Einstein's God. It's the the God that we all believed in that Carl deflated me with. I was so deflated when he said that uh said of course if we define god as the origin of reality and the laws of physics then we all believe and i thought thanks carl thanks for defeating all the work i thought i did the past couple years so the so the guy this guy this god the the origin of things uh from that god springs truth and truth is this powerful conflict concept that we that we kick around and we discuss and knowledge is is actually a very precious concept because it is knowledge that that is the bridge that we walk over from belief to truth belief is just you in your little bubble you believe all sorts of stuff but you don't get into truth unless you cross the bridge of knowledge and so we're all protectors we're all trolls on this bridge (laughs) of knowledge so you can't just cross you can't just say anything and be over in the truth, right? And so th- mm-hmm. this is our this is our job. We have to protect this concept of knowledge. Uh, that way, we don't have. And he makes the point too that we don't have people saying a bunch of crazy things uh, that are immediately taken as as gospel to to be funny. Uh, and as Hitchens said, that which can be asserted without evidence can be dismissed without evidence. Um, That's right. And so evidence and knowledge. This is how we protect truth. Uh, and I think it's a beautiful thing. I think so too. Uh, there's just uh, the cat's out of the bag in terms of that being mandatory requirements for any sort of ideas to become pervasive. So we're kind of fighting against that tide, but thousand percent agree. Always, always. But I mean that yeah. that goes into that goes into what people accept as evidence, um, mm-hmm. which I'm still mm-hmm. having. I'm still having trouble. I'm still having trouble reconciling the the fact that people accept different things as evidence with moral um, relativism. So I don't know how that's not at this point. I don't know how that's not a moral relativistic claim. Just admitting that some people can accept or, or not that some people can, that different people do accept different evidence differently and therefore, um, who are you to say, right? Uh, you you got some dude up here in a white coat that says that that blood belongs in the coal, but I don't believe him. So now what, right? We're we're back in square zero. This dude, mm-hmm. this dude's a, a ten year what a phlebotomist. Is that the people who draw blood? Phlebotomy. Yeah, phlebotomist. This mm-hmm. this dude's been a phlebotomist for ten years, and he does and he and he does DNA sampling and testing, and he's telling you that the blood is in the coals. And nope, don't believe him. Don't like the look in his eye. Don't think he's up to something. Think he's bought and paid for. Okay, then that that's just the end of it. 
Uh, now you're talking about a post-truth society. Yeah, yeah, and that's that's hard. That's a hard question. Uh, what? How do you encourage people? How do you encourage your neighbors to accept the same evidence that you're accepting? And I mean, isn't this the this is the work of community? Uh, I I think it's work that needs to be done, um, but it's not easy. I think that's where it ties into my. I mean, I don't want to dive into this too much more, but I think it just ties back to the idea that people have to be intrinsically motivated to do it because these things come from intrinsic, deeply ingrained beliefs. You've got to somehow ring that same bell. I don't know how to do that. I'm not saying that there's an easy answer, but you've got to somehow ring the same bell. And maybe maybe there's a lesson here in how Carl kind of tackled this whole concept, especially as you were saying with the deflation of the Albert Einstein, like, you know, creator sort of thing, like... If you really strip down, and what made me think about this was the back of the book, the Richard Dawkins quote says that Carl Sagan left behind the petty, small-minded theologians, is the way he says it. Mm. But it's kind of a good concept in the sense of leaving the standard religious debate behind and trying to take it on such a big picture that it becomes distilled down to the very basic elements. And I think the Q&A kind of brought that up because... Carl went so big picture that the Q&A seemed like they were arguing over dumb, minute details, because frankly, when you zoom out to such the big details, when you zoom out to such a large picture, those details do become very minute. So maybe there's a lesson in the way Carl approached it on such a big, grandiose level that it allowed things to be much simpler than, you know, arguing over the minutia. Well, it's uh, the for the Q&A, it's because they hung up on his his argument that the the proofs of God didn't actually offer proof of God. Uh, And so, yeah, they hung up on that a lot. And I think that's because they believe that there's a a judging God. Um, And a lot of people, a lot of people do. A lot of people still do. The examples that they used, they like brought up like a, Shit, you know, I can't even think of the examples, but I want to say it was like literature or poetry or items or artifacts that were supposedly found. And Yeah, they, opinion, the guy mentions the Shroud of Turin. Uh, yeah, and then another guy had talked about some like um, writings from the Apostles and how it yeah. passed down to poetry or something like that, right? And so I guess the reason why I'm saying those things are small as opposed to Carl's big picture is because... Carl was kind of taking the big picture of all of our collective experience, like, you know, here's where we stand now, what happens when the greater part of humanity prays, what doesn't happen when the greater part of humanity prays, Mm. while the questions were revolved around, but what about the small, minute experience that a certain sect of people had? And I guess that's kind of what I'm saying, is that Carl's approach to maybe taking that 10,000-foot view probably really helped in allowing it to cut through a lot of the bullshit because the only thing left standing is the bullshit that would have been propped up by people regardless of whatever view you took so i think uh i I wonder if we can steel man the religious position here uh i so thinking i was a believer and so it, it should be fairly straightforward for me to do uh there was a time when I believed that I believed in God, the Father of Jesus, and the Christian God as as mm-hmm. it's written. Same here. Yeah, yeah, I was raised Catholic. Same here. Mm-hmm. And in believing, so in believing that, what I accepted as evidence was the 
divine, holy, transcendent, spiritual, whatever you want to call it, miraculous origin of the Bible. That's what I held as evidence. Uh, and I mm-hmm. and I believe that and I accept it as evidence. So back to the to the more rel- relativistic thing. If someone. You know, I, I guess what I would say is that people have to recognize that they choose to accept the Bible as evidence. And if you do, you do. That's great. Right. And if you don't, you don't. But you just have to recognize that that's a choice. Nobody says you have to accept the Bible as evidence. But if you do accept it as evidence, then then, you know, the case is compelling. Right. And, and this is how Christians communicate with each other. So readily right because you're there's there's a central text right and so we can talk about the the uh importance of the stories and we can talk about the, the how they what they mean for our lives today and what they mean for our lives in this moment we can talk discuss our context meaningfully because we have this this core text that we share and that gives people solace that gives people strength that gives people the courage to go forward uh and how you know and who are we to to try to take that from people. But it's kind of a culture or of, I want to say veneer, but I don't want to carry the negative, like shallow connotations that a veneer has, but Mm. I do want to use the imagery that veneer brings. It's sort of a veneer over the actual text, like the culture of American Christianity or any religion in particular, because things that are prioritized, the things that are called out, the general part of that subset culture's major discussion points or concerns are created in that environment. Mm. Um, I think Carl Sagan kind of talks about like how, you know, that person, that one politician could have made a difference in terms of trying to stop a bad Mm -hmm. thing, Mm -hmm. but let it go because of his beliefs. Right. Mm -hmm. So, I think that same kind of concept of beliefs. What am I trying to say here? I lost where I was going with that a little bit. It's that there's, I think, I think you were saying that there's that what, what Carl is talking about and what we're trying to talk about are the, the deep claims in these religious texts without trying to take away the, the, culture of it right singing songs Mm. coming together sharing meals singing hymns reciting prayers you know reading the text together all these wonderful things beautiful things we're not taking those away what we're saying what we're offering is some skepticism on some of the deepest theological claims be and you know and that goes that actually goes hand in hand with offering criticism to the superficial claims like we were talking earlier with the one person saying look up another person saying look down uh, that's mm-hmm. that's a deeply human endeavor and that should happen and and it should also happen on the deeper points as well uh, not just the superficial ones right you can tell me that i shouldn't eat bread and wine on sundays in communion uh and you can tell me that i shouldn't believe that uh, that jesus was half man half deity uh you can tell me these things and this and you telling me these things is are manifestations of beautiful humanity, uh, as long as we're not actively shooting, killing each other over over these things, like the Crusades or something like this, right? Um, yeah, and I'm yeah. glad you said that because that was kind of the root I was getting at was that these 
these people believe these things and are able to have community because of these beliefs. Mm. However, if you were to place a Christian from Morocco and a Christian from Kentucky next to each other, they wouldn't feel as though they had the same faith. Mm. So in a sense, we've already prioritized understanding and carving out the differences in our beliefs as evidenced by the many variations of sex or religions that appear out in the religious landscape. I think maybe what I was trying to say about you were making a comment about people admitting to themselves that this is what they believe. Mm. I think I think people admit that belief inside a certain context and what we're asking them to do is now admit it in a different context mm. that produces cognitive dissonance. And I don't ever think that that's going to happen because cognitive dissonance is, you know, conniption. It's the uh, brain explodes like we can't handle that. Mm. So people have to hold these beliefs under certain contexts that makes them agreeable to the other beliefs within the same headspace. So I feel like it's more than just asking people to admit they believe these things. It's somehow asking them to recognize the context where it is contradictory and be comfortable with that. And maybe that goes back to the same thing we were saying earlier about how do you get people to confront and be comfortable with the discomfort of their ego blowing back on them? And how do you get people to be comfortable with the thought of sacrificing a little bit of money or luxury now for the sake of saving our planet in you know the next 200 years it's uh but the beliefs aren't really ever contradictory there's no for instance there's no context in which pastafarianism isn't true there's no because it's not falsifiable so there's no there's no context here on the surface of earth where i can't tell you about uh the the, the squid and what he's doing for us Mm-hmm. So That's there's true. there's no conflict <laughs> there's no conflict here. Uh, as long as we're walking around, you need to be wearing your colander, and, and I'll wear mine. <laughs> yeah, but I feel like it has to do a bit more. Because my with my argument was it was getting them to accept responsibility of that as a choice, which is that that's what I don't think gets gets pounded down enough. Is that people well, people so say, oh, I have to believe this because X Y Z, my parents, my family, da da da. No, you don't. You don't have to believe what your parents believe. You don't have to believe what your neighbors believe. You don't have to. Um, I met a guy one time from, he was from Saudi Arabia, uh, and he was, they were doing a tour on campus. I think they were doing English or something like this. And it was just, it was literally a, a, a luncheon for this group just to meet Americans and talk. It was really, really cool. Um, and so I'm talking to this guy and he shows me his ID. Uh, you know, his name was, was, uh, you know, Jamal Al bin Muhammad Al bin, he, all those granddad's last names. I think he had four mm-hmm. or five last names on his ID. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I said, I asked him, I said, you know, are there any atheists in Saudi Arabia? And he said, no. And I said, no, no, no. I don't mean people who say it. I mean, people who, who are actually, you know, I was asking him if there are people who are actually atheists, but they don't come out about it. And he legit said, no. And he seemed to really believe. He seemed to really mm-hmm. believe it. Now, of course, of course, there are atheists in Saudi Arabia. They just can't say that they're atheists. But this guy that I was talking to seemed to really believe that there were none. Nope, nope. Everybody's a believing Muslim in his mind. Um, and so, yeah, my my effort would be to push those people to speak out, right? Uh, and then and then have society not punish people people for speaking uh simply for speaking 
you know, I didn't really think about all the people who were kind of just following suit. I think that that's a fair thing to consider. I was always thinking about those who had internalized their beliefs, but there are plenty of people who simply carry beliefs without internalizing and truly considering them. And it's worth asking that they do that. That's totally fair. Yeah, yeah. And that's, you know, and and uh, to just make sure that I'm not practicing hypocrisy here, uh, it's at least in this one specific regard, we're all hypocrites a little bit. So in this one specific regard, I accept full responsibility for everything I believe. Uh, I believe that we are on earth and all the other scientific things, right? Uh, there's a whole science community that preaches a bunch of stuff. And I believe a lot, most of it. Uh, and I choose to believe those things. I could be wrong. And it's one of the great things that I, that I actually dig about Carl, um, is that, and, and this way of thinking generally, the scientific way of thinking, which is that our beliefs, our, our, our beliefs are grounded in the fact that they might be wrong. Right. And so and that is contrasted black and white contrasted with religious belief, which is grounded in unfalsifiable. It can't be wrong. And not only can it not be wrong, it can't be shown to be wrong. Right. It has Lingu- to go ahead. I would say language has addressed this with the words belief and faith. Right. Belief and faith. Like uh, like uh, language and human language has tried to address the distinction here by having the word beliefs, things that we believe under possibly no evidence, and things such as faith that we take unequivocally to be true because, in a way, there's no way to disprove them. At least, maybe faith doesn't always carry that context, but for me, it definitely the word definitely carried that. No, that that's fair. That's fair. So if we're talking about a spectrum, now we have this cool spectrum that we've built where on one end is truth mm-hmm. and on the other end is faith. And then next to truth is knowledge. And then next to on the other side of knowledge from truth is belief. And then next to and then belief is in between faith and knowledge. And so you have this intuitions fo- in the middle there too somewhere. Where is intuition? So from 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 left to right, we've got truth knowledge belief faith now where's intuition somewhere between belief and faith intuition yeah hmm hmm this is where the heart lives yeah because this none of these things that we're talking about have any inherent or actual representation of accuracy or fact it's just simply based upon the knowledge. What do you mean? No, no truth. No knowledge. Knowledge is based in fact. Yeah, I'm sorry. That wasn't fair. Um, Belief is actually. But so here, how about this? There's a there's a, a increasing level of fact going from belief to towards truth. Right. Once it's the truth, fact, it's truth, truth and fact, same things, interchangeable. But uh, the scale doesn't go from true to untrue the scale goes from verifiable to unverifiable yes and unverifiable things aren't inherently untrue yeah so untrue would be in some other direction some orthogonal axis this this is what we're talking about here so with intuition being in between belief and truth then the, and that's where we 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 live we live at the intuitive level oh, that's no, where I think we are the, 
I think between belief and faith. Belief and faith. I'm sorry, I misspoke. Uh, no, that's okay. With intuition in between belief and faith, we live at this level, and so one one is always looking out at the world and feeling their faith. One one is walking their faith. No no choice about it. It's just how the human mind works. Uh, it's actually a floating ball of electric jelly in a dark hole in a dark orb right that's where the brain actually is um and it's it's forming it's it's interpreting the signals that it's that it's retinas are picking up from the world and it's neurons and it's are picking up from the world. it's interpreting these things as physical phenomena that are happening outside of the of the cellularly contiguous organism and then it says okay this is what i've interpreted these are my beliefs. This is what I think these beliefs point to. And that's your faith. That's your religion. Mm-hmm. This is Tolstoy's religion that you're walking yes. around with. And you're, yes. you're, you're saying, I think this is what I think. This is my opinion. So that means that means in between belief and faith, there's opinion. <laughs> that's actually really true. Yes. In between belief and faith is opinion. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I think opinion comes before intuition, but absolutely. If we're going left to right. Yeah, intuition and opinion. Multiple things are between belief and faith. This is your complex thing we're talking about here. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That's there. That's where we live. And then it's so beautiful because I'm living in this space of intuition and, and opinion and faith and belief. And you're living in the same space. But when we come together and we do these things that are falsifiable to the third, fourth, fifth and sixth party. Now we're playing in the space of knowledge and truth, but it's only when it's falsifiable to other people are we playing in that which space. Is, which is why, in a sense, that space only exists with others. And as mm-hmm. long as we're mm-hmm. considering the individual on their own, yeah, what can you truly have? You don't. You don't have anything. So I say that objective real objective reality is constituted entirely by subjective testimonies. That is to say, when it's just you. There is no objectivity. There's no objective reality. There's only your subjective reality when it's just you. But then once there's you and someone else, you guys are talking. Now there's an objective reality because you're both offering your testimony as to what's going on around you. Is it cold? Is it snowing? Is it raining? What is it now? Now there's something going on. This is another vein of McKenna's where he talks about how language is essentially an alchemical process of creation by which a reality Mm. is built Mm -hmm. by the use of dialogue. Mm -hmm. And I think that I always found that as really flowery and a bit too out there for Mm -hmm. me, but this conversation right here is, uh, that really grounds that in a lot of truth for me. No, that's it. That's no, there is no objective reality is created by subjective testimonies. That's all there is. All there is is subjective testimony. That's all there is. There's, there's me in a vat talking thinking i'm talking out to but i'm actually a floating brain in a vet and the machines are doing what they're doing but i'm sitting here <laughs> thinking i'm talking out out to my friend across the internet uh that's all there is a subjective testimony perception equals reality yeah that yeah. actually kind of ties into one of the other quotes i had where mm. um it was talking about da, 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 136 man would tell a lie let me pull it up here and just go through it. I want to make sure I give it the proper due because it's extremely relevant. I'm not just trying to jump forward. You're fine. Um, One thirty. Another way in which this is, yeah, near the bottom, that paragraph after the quote. 
got it. Sagan says, and another way in which this has been phrased is by Thomas Paine, one of the heroes of the American Revolution, who is essentially a paraphrasing Hume. He says, is it more probable that nature should go out of her course or that a man should tell a lie? If we're talking that language is the alchemical process by which reality is essentially distilled out of mm. lying becomes the equivalent of black magic and the ability to form a nefarious reality or object by which to cause harm yes yeah that's some crazy shit. what i like to say is that objective reality is constituted entirely by subjective testimonies healthy reality Health, no healthy objective reality is constituted entirely by truthful subjective testimonies, whereas unhealthy reality is constituted by untruthful subjective testimonies. That sounds like such an of course, but how can how can we, if without others, do not have the ability to have an objective reality, recognize what truth can be without an objective reality to refer to to find truth? Right. If you live in a covenant well there was that show uh unbreakable kimmy schmidt where she had three other people who mm -hmm. were like in some sort of religious bunker right and mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. they thought that mm -hmm. yeah so that was three people who had had testimony which were all true and yet true in the sense of relative to them but it wasn't actually the truth so that's kind of where the slippery slope begins and why it has to not be about truth maybe as much as verifiability because no it has to it has to no truth 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 comes on the other side of, of, well, so falsifiability. Yes. Truth is falsifiable. Um, but no, that's exactly, that exactly makes the point because Kimmy and her friends were in the bunker because the Reverend was lying to them. And so his lie was, was powerful enough in this case, let's say to, to mask their, Per, their pursuit of their reality they were you know they were telling the truth they believed his lies uh but his lies made their their objective reality unhealthy because yes. they were believing it and this starts to tie into kind of why i brought up the quote as well and you know made me think about because mckenna always advocates for your own personal experience if McKenna's argument of your own personal experience is the only thing by which you can judge to be true and this conclusion that we're reaching and I feel to be true as well that truth can really only be found when validated by others. Mm -hmm. Kimmy thought that she had found truth and it was validated by others. For all intents and purposes she was 100% correct but she wasn't because others had also been deceived by the same lie. So we really have no way of assuring that we're not also being deceived by some grandiose lie extraordinary claims need extraordinary evidence of course but i feel like the logic isn't that out of the realm of possibility no i have to say i have to say that i disagree with terrence then so what you experience is not truth mm -hmm. you don't such a dark hole though that's such a dark dark path, it's not but... it's not because what you experience is 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 what you experience forms belief. That's where you start. Uh, as we said, experience forms belief. That's the beginning point right there. Mm -hmm. Not truth, 
belief. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and so you you don't experience truth. You experience ph- phenomena, right? What, what what is it that you experience directly, right? What is the waking consciousness? Uh, you you experience, yeah, is isness, right? That's that's what you experience, but it's not truth the way we're using it in conversation. Uh, in this conversation, but it can be. It can be if you tailor other experiences uh, to go along inside it. Well, no, because when Albert Einstein did his experiments, you know, I'm just using. I'm not trying to draw anything specific. He's just the first scientist that came to mind. He came to truth about the universe through his own experience. Yeah, uh, he didn't. He came to an, uh, an approximation, a mathematical approximation of truth, not truth. So he, mm. we, we experience waking we experience awareness and it's it's crazy and it's weird uh, in what it is and it's it's deeply in- interesting this is where i use the word spiritual to to go back to just contrast what we were saying earlier why i was pushing pushing against your definition of spiritual and trying to pull it to be more religious uh, because in my mind this is what i call spiritual what i call spiritual is the the waking the moment to moment waking um that's what I call the, the spiritual. And this is where we are. This is where we are one moment to the next. But there's no truth here in my singular subjective experience. There's only belief uh, the way we're using the way we're using truth in this conversation. So, of course, truth, there are more concepts than words. And so there are several million concepts inside of the, the one word truth. Um, <laughs> of course. Of course. And so the one that we're using that I'm using uh, and that we're using in our in our quadrant or in our in our linear analogy is the one that exists on the other side of falsifiability and verifiability that is by others. That's the truth. And you don't experience that. None of us do. None of us experience that truth directly. And so maybe what Terrence McKenna was talking about would have been something would have been something more like the isness, uh, the hereness, right? That that's the truth that he would have been talking about. I do think that he would have also applied it, though, to say, you know, these experiments around the speed of light are based around a couple of concepts that you yourself can also experience. And then, therefore, you'd know that through your own experience and through the logic that's presented, in a way, you can kind of have your own pseudo experience to learn a truth where you may not exactly be in front of the $50,000 machine taking the measurements and whatnot. You're not getting that experience. But you understand the way these things work and I guess there is a level of hearsay that you're always going to accept but I think at a certain level those experiences become more in the experience realm rather than in the hearsay realm yeah so when I say experience I'm talking about the five senses and that's really it what are you talking about I totally agree with that completely and so in a way it's a pseudo experience of those five senses while you didn't see the measurement of the millisecond clock get triggered by the pulse of light that was released from the experiment apparatus you can still read the data about how the apparatus was built understand what aluminum and you know different magnets do when they function together and at a certain level you can have a quasi similar experience of sight smell and everything about the experiment without actually having the full-fledged one and i think terence would argue that that experience is personal enough to be something that you could consider truth because it was one with your eyes and your nose and your ears and all that stuff 
No. Well, nope, nope. I disagree with him here. And I actually agree with a guy who was fighting with Sam on one of Sam's more recent podcasts. This guy, Daniel something, I think. Um, it was someone who disagreed with Dan- Sam's description of, of uh, the deep meditative experience. Mm. Just he disagreed with the, with what the guy's argument was was that, uh, and it was a powerful one. It, it resonated with me, and it's resonating with me now. That inside of your mind, this is the royal you. You cannot say that it, there's no objective observation of your own mind. That's an oxymoron. It doesn't happen. There's no such thing as an objective observation by you of your own mind. No matter sure. no, no matter how calm, <laughs> no matter how calm and relaxed you think you are, yeah. uh, your experience of your own mind is subjective. It's subjectivity. You're the subject, and and Sam would at some point Sam would uh, point to that. They they had a lot of definitional disagreements, but uh, mm. but this was one point where where I think I think landed where he said. It's not fair and so to, to push against what Terrence said, even if you're at the microscope and you the photons that represent the cell and the dish travel through the microscope and hit your retina and then your brain decodes the image of the one cell dividing into two uh, underneath the light of the microscope. And you say to yourself, this cell type does divide. You say that out loud. Nobody else is in the room. You experiencing this with your five senses forms a belief about that moment there's no truth here there's still no truth here you believe this just happened because you experienced it it would take another scientist coming into the room looking through the microscope seeing the cell and then saying this cell type does divide now there's an objective reality to be had now there's some falsifiability now we're walking towards truth and not before Oof. Yeah, I think uh, now I'm starting to think about like the moral implications of whether or not somebody may believe something to be, whether or not somebody would believe something that they don't necessarily think would be true. Because in my opinion, my model is kind of really working around the idea that people will reject things very strictly that they do not under any, that they could be believed would be false and would be willing to accept things that they wholeheartedly believe would be true. But the yeah. reality is that I just slapped the word belief before truth, which is the exact point that you just tried to make by pointing out that there's an interstitial stage before truth comes to pass. So yeah, I think, it, uh, it takes it takes others. Yeah. Now, with with belief, you know, one can uh, let's see. No, no, that's it's that's squarely belief. It's squarely belief. And it's fine to call it belief. All of your experience, the the I think it's a Chinese proverb: believe none of what you hear, half of what you see, and all of what you do. Uh, <laughs> but the functional word there is believe, not right. know what is true, half of what you see, all and all of what you do. And it's not know what you tr- what is true, all of what you do. It's just believe. If you did it, you can believe that it's done because you did it. Um, Oh, but that sounds like experience is true. You can believe because you've done it. Yeah, you can believe. You can believe. Oh, yeah. Huh. Yeah. And if you believe, what's the difference between believing all of and truth? 
the only thing is that it's just been verified by a third party present, but for all intents and purposes, well, it's below. Oh, but you know what? That, no, that's the point that you made earlier was mm. that these are all terms that are either being used in the vacuum of the individual or in the context of the social group. And I would actually really want to somehow talk with Terrence about understanding whether he was talking about that from the frame set of just the individual or of the social group, because I think that's a really valid distinction and it changes the meaning. Well, and this goes into, so there's a, another, let's not forget about knowledge, which is in between belief and truth. So mm. I, my experience from one moment to the next constitutes the things that I believe. Uh, and then when I believe so many things and I claim to know so many things because I experienced them directly and I believe them because I, because I experienced them. And so I claim to know them. Someone else comes along and says, I claim to know the same things that you're claiming to know. Uh, and now we have some grip on knowledge, but we're still not to truth. You have to go through because you could have because it could be me and you that claim to know one thing. And then Jim and Tom claim to know something that's completely contradictory to what we claim to know. Mm. And that happens a lot. <laughs> <laughs> it happens a lot and so the truth still hasn't landed uh and to carl's point uh and this is something i'll just i'll read it it's really quick if i can find it it's 239 where i i guess i can paraphrase it just to stay in flow but it's that the the questioner says to him uh oh right i don't believe as a physicist that physics deals with truth i believe that it deals with successive successive approximations to the truth and carl says so do i <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah that's what we're doing we're all we're all pursuing truth uh yeah and then the, exactly what the questioner says next i think if i'd ever dealt with the truth that we'd be out of a job what a beautiful like recognition mm -hmm. yeah yeah yeah, yeah. We're, we're pursuing truth truth is truth is a north star right you don't you don't get to the north star from earth you just you follow it and you end up at the north point uh, and then that's it. You don't actually actually get there. Onto the axis Monday. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. That actually ties into uh, if you're talking about the way that we kind of structure ourselves in terms of what we consider truth and what we don't. Mm. Um, one of the quotes I had was, uh, "It doesn't seem like it's actually a page, but it's around 184-ish area." Okay. where he's talking about molecules and religion. I want to get back to that one, but I guess inside there, he also mentioned something about the different types of social structures that have been found in history. Mm. So there's like the male-dominated, property-driven kind of structure, mm -hmm. and then there was the like hunter-gatherer, um, tribal culture, mm -hmm. and um, like in him bringing this up, it made me sort of think about how it seemed like in each one of these situations, there's always a social structure. Now, the revelation that humans do best at social structure isn't exactly particularly fascinating or new, but what I did think was fascinating and new was that it seemed like one of those social structures was where nature was sort of the most dominant and in charge and it seems like humanity will always have a dominator subservient type of social structure whether that be us as both the dominator and the subservient whether that be us at the mercy of nature or some other sort of mixture but 
it really seems like we're always going to have that kind of social hierarchy. So maybe it's about engineering that hierarchy in a way that makes us all the most uh, equal or all the most successful together, cohesive. I'm not sure what I'm trying to say here. But are you seeing any kind of, like, not dichotomy, um, parallels here that I'm trying to point out? Um, in thinking about that passage, I remember him pointing out that it was the it was the groups that were affectionate towards children that were more egalitarian and the groups that were not affectionate with children that were more hierarchical. Um, mm -hmm. And so I thought that was interesting. Um, for our species, I see, you know, I'm, I'm a liberal, so I lean more towards affectionate towards children be more egalitarian that's my you know the more i'm my general feeling is the more of that the better um but that's part of what makes me a liberal or or the or the chicken before the egg i'm a liberal because that's part of me um yeah or you know if i felt like we needed more hierarchy then the kids are kids are coddled too much uh, <laughs> i'd probably be conservative and then think uh, kids are coddled too much you need to leave the kids yeah. alone the kids participation trophies get out of town and uh, i do think participation participation trophies are ridiculous uh, but still hug, you should still hug your kids right the kids shouldn't get a trophy because he came in fourth but he should get hugged on the way home <laughs> yeah. yeah so it sounds like you're kind of validating my argument that in some way there's going to need to be that structure it's just how it's orientated you're kind of saying that there's always going to be one way or the other conservative or liberal in the sense of the way you see structure should be implemented. But on a basic level, I think you're kind of saying that it has to be there. And that it's I, just that, the way that it's imposed. Yeah, both both need to be there, right? The, the species, we need to maintain flexibility. Uh, and I think in this day and age, oh, that's good. individuals actually have to be more flexible than ever. Uh, for our grandparents, listening to what your parents said was wise. For millennials, listening to what your parents says is dangerous. Your parents don't know. <laughs> your parents don't know the world you're in. They just don't. And they're going to give you with their best of intentions. They're going to tell you how to thrive in the world that they grew up in that doesn't exist anymore. That's what's true for us. And so for our, what's going to be true for our kids our kids are going to have to flex and bend in ways that we can't even imagine. Uh, so, so, yeah, yeah, that's what I think is going on. I think adaptability is the name of the game. And both, you know, understanding, I think what's more important is understanding when dominance and should be increased, understanding when egalitarianism and affection should be increased, and understand when the reverse should happen uh, and what that means for our survival. And, and, and that's part of the religious idea that I think is inescapable. I think it's inescapable. I don't want to escape it. I don't know if I could, which is the idea that the continuance of our species is, is above all. The continuance of the species is above all, right? Um, right, of course. Yeah, yeah. And so that's what we put first. And so for the continuance of the species and in thinking about the higher, the society that was more more dominating more more rigid in its hierarchy and the other one that didn't even have as much ownership uh i think being flexible for going forward and understanding both and when you can implement one and, and move to the and need to pivot to the other that's more important than being one or the other um but to that section i actually wanted to say that it was interesting that the if you remember the ownership 
of the of the kill went to the person that made the arrow tip. Yeah, that was interesting. And yeah. then they basically distributed that credit by saying, well, you were only able to, able to make the arrows because everyone else is feeding you and everyone else is only able to feed you. Yeah, it wasn't a hard ownership, but it but yeah. the soft, but the best part went to them. I actually wrote that down as one of my quotes. Uh, the, the, the best part went to the person that made the arrow. And I thought that was so wise and ingenious because you, as a, so, as a society, we want to reward the behavior that is most directly responsible for the acquisition of resources. And so, yes. uh, and of course we're seeing now in quote unquote late stage capitalism that that has an extreme <laughs> that yeah. we, that's harmful yeah. to us all. I'm so glad you pulled that thread. Yeah, 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 that has an extreme, right? We don't, want to, we don't want to reward it to no end. We want an end, right? We need Bezos to pay more taxes. Thanks for making Amazon, please pay more taxes. Um, but yes generally whatever behavior can attract resources and and acquire resources and and, uh, concentrate resources generally yes we want to reward that behavior that actually ties into one of my last two quotes perfectly um and it's actually perfect because i wanted to bring it up next so i had it ready and literally what you said is a perfect segue into it it's uh 216 the first paragraph at the top okay let me know when you're there 216 one way mm-hmm. okay mm-hmm. um oh, i just lost your hand okay um one way to think of our time is as a race between these conflicting tendencies one to bind up the planet preserving it may be some of the ethnic and cultural diversity and the contrary trend to destroy the planet, not in a geographical sense, but the planet in the sense of the world that we know. It is by no means clear which of these two conflicting tendencies will win out in the lifetime of you who are among the first to be hearing these words. I think what you were just saying about kind of that flexibility and being able to recognize that it's necessary for our survival Mm. is exactly represented in Carl Sagan's point that we are the first of generations to ever hear the words that our actions are going to define the way that we survive or don't because Mm. we are moving in two different directions. And I just thought that was like, what a powerful way of essentially not only summarizing the gravity of the situation, but also um, recognizing the empowering position that we're at by which yeah. to make that decision. And I think that your flexibility is that you're trying to like point to is a really, really, really key point in that in that decision. Yeah, I actually didn't agree with him when I read that. Uh, only in the what? bit I I agreed with the part that one way to think of well i didn't know so bind up our planet preserving as it may be some of its ethnic cultural diversity yes we have a drive to do that i go okay yes that is one of our tendencies yes but then he said and the contrary to destroy the planet uh that's where i disagree i don't think we have a tendency to destroy the planet uh, i don't think that tendency exists um and it, it doesn't exist in any of our minds as that now that destroying the planet is a consequence of some of our tendencies um so i think we have a tendency to acquire resources i think we have a tendency to be selfish uh, and i think we have a tendency to 
be overly selfish to the point of being willing to let other people die, right? And as I think we have a tendency towards war and power. I think those are our tendencies. And when you put all those tendencies in a soup, you can call it a tendency to destroy the planet. But I don't think that's the tendency that we experience on a first person basis. Well, then maybe I disagree with your first statement and say, I don't think the tendency we experience on the first person basis is the desire for wanting to preserve different cultures. I just think mm, the mm. tendency we experience on the first basis is interests or yes. curiosity. Yes, or I would agree with that. Uh huh. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. The factors that distill down from that are mm-hmm. the ones in cultures. So I can understand your disagreement, but I, I still think that even with your disagreement, it's logically consistent and metaphorically consistent. Yes, so, yes, so I, should, okay. I should grant that. Yes, I, I did understand what he meant um, by saying that when you add it all, when you add us up, either we're going to save ourselves or destroy ourselves. Right. That's that's a true way of saying. It. Yeah. Yeah. And you've got a fair point to say that it may not be the fairest way to distill down our two sources of behavior. I, you know, I definitely am not trying to take away from your point there at all, but. I, it kind of still resonated with me. And um, and your point was much more uh, about, not to miss, miss track of that, I caught it, which is that time is changing so fast that our generation are the first to hear this. <laughs> We're the first generation that, that has to live wholly, born into it, the fact that we could destroy ourselves. Our parents weren't born in that reality. In our parents' right. reality, they were born into a world in which man you know one nation could destroy another but no group of people could destroy the planet the planet was indestructible to our parents when they were born same for our grandparents but for us that's not true we could we could jack this whole thing up and we know it one of my favorite subreddits i discovered in the past couple of years was one called brand new sentence and it's essentially what? Like what is brand- this yeah, look it up. It's hilarious. It's essentially like things that you would have never imagined would be sentences, but now based upon technology or culture or whatever, just there's brand new sentences being created. I wish I could think of a great one right now on the fly, but I can't. But uh, to me, that's what this statement was, that we were the first to hear these words put together in this way, literally as a brand new sentence. And in all the millennia of human evolution and development to come to a pinnacle where that kind of sentence is what's created if that doesn't humble you in some sort of great way i'm not sure what more you're going to be looking for let's see college is the time for for exploration uh oh wait oh this my freshman roommate would leave the dorm at 2 a.m in the morning and come back around 4 a.m thought she was chilling with a boy or something turns out that's the prime time to watch raccoons and the pond near the HFAC. And that was the brand new sentence. <laughs> yeah, it's sometimes dumb, but I've seen some. Damn, really a coffin costs $4,000. Y'all could bury me loose. <laughs> That's funny. It's called cremation, buddy. Uh, I like those. Uh, have you heard those eco sacks where you just get thrown in like a biodegradable bag that has a seedling planted in it already? So you grow into a tree. What did you call it? An eco sack? I heard it be called as a pod. Yeah, eco pod, something like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I've yeah. I've told Lorraine over and over I want to be buried in a pod. Hell yeah! It's so much um, better, so much better than a tree. coffin. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Because especially because my plan is to own the land and then be potted on it, uh, and then my bones will be there, and then all my grandkids and great grandkids will have this whole 
yard build a vineyard around me that's what i want i want to be a tree in the middle of a vineyard for all of eternity boy that's really pretty yeah Damn. or an orchard maybe because i don't drink wine I, I like orange juice though an apple orchard i like apples i'm about it apple soup what are they called honey crisp i want to be i want to be potted <laughs> in i want to be potted underneath a very tall pine but surrounded by a honey crisp apple orchard for at least half a mile in every direction that would smell really good that's for sure that's where I, that's my eternity right there on land that my family owns and, and will never sell don't sell the land they're just going to bulldoze it and dig up great grandpa you don't want that <laughs> but they want the money they, <laughs> <laughs> what drug addict ass great grandkids selling my land <laughs> What if they're entrepreneurs and they're just like, yeah, it's great grandma's land. Oh, jeez. Cold-hearted, cold-hearted great-grandkids. Just selling it. Why why we got to have this place be apples? We can make so much more money making podcasts. (laughs) Maybe that's what she can do. You can just put a stipulation in there. It can bulldoze her podcast studios. Never. Never. (laughs) Sell it to someone who's going to keep it in orchard. Don't. If you're going to sell it, sell it to someone who's going to keep it in orchard, please. Or take my bones with you. I don't know. Do something. <laughs> don't just leave me here. I'm going to be pleading from the afterlife. That's what I'll do. We went from don't waste time on a don't waste time and money on a coffin to please bring my bones with you. That's right. That's hilarious. Don't forget great grandpa. That's how I feel about it. All right. All right. Last one I want to go through with you is the whole discussion about... Um, Carl Sagan, the thought experiment, if we could distill down religious experience to a molecule. I loved this whole thought. I, I was thinking about DMT here. the whole time. Is that, yeah, okay. I was thinking the same thing too, but yeah. I was also kind of thinking about like, I was actually really thinking about the whole Terrence McKenna experience thing because like when you take DMT or psychedelics, whatever, you're taken to another place and people mm-hmm. oftentimes say like, oh, that's not real. It's just under the influence of a chemical. Mm-hmm. But Sagan's kind of discussion about we see through chemicals when Mm -hmm. a photon strikes our eye it triggers a bunch of chemical reactions that ended up becoming a visual process inside of our brain that we can somehow experience right or I'm sure it's understood more than I said that but whatever you get the point Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. if everything is communicated through molecules where do you draw the line between hallucination and what's really there and you know all of this stuff right mm-hmm. obviously we have lines that we have words that draw these lines based upon language because we understand them as concepts but this whole theory really muddles the water across the board for me and makes it a lot more difficult for me to be able to draw hard lines around different parameters of the human experience i don't think it's that hard i don't think it's it, it stays hard because what? I don't think so. No, because it's easy to, it's easy to differentiate experiences that you have, subjective experiences in your mind, no matter how profound they are. It's easy to differentiate those from the testimony that's given to you by your proximate neighbors. That is to say, people in the same room as you. Uh, and so it makes it very, very easy to say, okay. I had this experience where I was where I was laying down and behind me was an enormous square monster daring me to turn around so they could either eat me, chew me up all three and kill me nonetheless. Uh, that was my 
experience. And anybody in the same room with me would have said, yeah, you were linked against, you had your back against the back of the couch and that was the end of it. There was no, <laughs> there was no monster. <laughs> there was none of that. Uh, I can tell you cause I was in the room. And so it's, it's very easy. You know, if, if it were only you, if it were the Royal you here having the experience, then yes, then there's no differentiating objective from there's no the, what you experience is the world and the world is what you experience one of the same one to one but when there are other people telling you yeah i'm happy you experienced that in your mind in the world where the rest of us are at this moment none of that happened it's very easy to do i think though the chemical molecular kind of model for experience invites intentionally the gray area or variance mm. that people can have chemically in their brain and in their body and in their experience in that sense. And so I kind of feel like how gray though? What do you mean, what do you mean by from. gray? What, what would be the black and the white? Um, have you seen those videos where they, it's, it's like a, it's, I've, I've seen it when they're trying to explain some kind of like psychological phenomenon where you are told to watch this video of people walking back and forth across the room in different mm -hmm. colored shirts. And you only have to count the number of times that you see the person in the green shirt or something mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. 10, 12, 15, 25 people watch the video. 18, 19, 20 of them all say the same thing. Maybe two or three say, holy shit, there was a gorilla that walked in the middle of it. How did mm. you guys not see it? Mm. The gorilla was actually there in the video. To those 19 or 20 people who were simply fixated on looking for the green shirt, they can completely miss the gorilla that walks in there, mm. have no perception of it actually happening. Technically, the experience, from an objective truth kind of standpoint, if you're looking at everybody around you, there's very few people who saw the gorilla and much more people who didn't. If we were to just go by a sort of wisdom of the masses based on what everybody validated, then we would essentially have lied to ourselves and say the gorilla didn't exist. But the reality is that some people were having the proper chemistry at the time to notice that particular gorilla, whatever the proper chemistry was. I'm not trying to invoke um, right or wrong or good or bad values here. They just had the specific chemistry available, available to them at the time where they were able to experience the gorilla. So how can we... How does that not murky things up? It doesn't murky things up. Well, well, it, it does murky things up in the same way that Christian, in the same way, same way that Shia and Shiite fight over the nature of Islam is murky in the same way that, that, that Christians uh, going to war against fair. it's the, but it's the, I think it's the, I think it is fair because you're talking about one group of people that have one set of experiences and then they form their beliefs around these experiences and they say this is what we experience is this is what we believe about objective reality and you have another group of people that experience what should be the same reality but they don't they experience something different um, and they have a different claim uh, some you know half say the gorilla was there half say it wasn't uh, and this creates murkiness, what you're calling, because there are disparities in claims about what's objectively true. This is and this is very murky. It doesn't create murkiness. The murkiness is there. It's always there. Um, but I don't. I, I still don't understand the gray and the the white and the black of the, of the gray. You said it, you said that the molecule idea creates a gray area, and I, I didn't follow you there. 
Yeah, I guess what I'm saying is that if we're simply going to relate to an experience model, then it's sort of like the ego model, that whatever the ego perceives is the reality. But if we're looking at a chemistry model, then you can kind of say that the chemistry just wasn't available to notice the gorilla at that time, ergo perceiving a different reality. I think I think the ego point that I started with here wasn't as strong, but I still think the chemical point still stands fine, that chemical variations can lead to different experiences and if experiences when compared to each other are what we use for the metrics of truth then it shows that a chemical variance which we have no control over or no awareness of in a sense can lead to a completely different reality and a completely different truth and if a small bit of chemical variance can create a completely different truth in one person what happens when the chemical roulette is rolling 24 by 7 every single day in millions and millions of people mm. that's, the that's algorithm terrific creates, yeah yeah it's wonderful that's kind of what I'm trying to get to yeah it's great i love it um so it in our in our picture that we've drawn where you as an individual at, where you as a subjective entity sit in between belief and faith at all times and here in between belief and faith you have opinion and intuition in between opinion intuition and you <laughs> there is chemistry right so your opinions and your intuitions are the results of chemistry one right. moment to the next and that chemistry is essentially a black box that's not it's not a black box it's a pink block pink blocks pink box it's a pink sure. it's a pink box with veins inside of a inside of a black it is black where it is because there's no light in the skull And I think the concept still kind of holds that maybe it's a gray box where we don't really completely understand how the inputs come in, come out the way that they do. We know that they will come out in a certain way, but we don't actually know the process by how that happens. I mean, like where, where we, what we know about, what we know about the functioning brain is, is something like. So if you were to go, I'm going to say this, if you if you were to go into into the Pacific Ocean and take a uh, a glass of water and then study all the microbes in that glass of water, that's what we know about the brain. Something right. like we that. Know what it, we know yeah. what the we know what that glass of water. We know what most of it. And, and if you if you study that glass of water, you know what most of the ocean is water. <laughs> Yeah, you know what it's composed. But there are of some you big parts you're produce. missing. There are some big parts right. you're missing. You don't have the you don't have in that glass of water the full history of how that all that water was synthesized to be there. You don't have the full history of how the molecules and little creatures and phytoplankton and all that came to be within that same glass. You just understand that from the source you have pulled this information. So we see the beginning and we see the end. But I think that actually highlights my analogy is still pretty well that in mm -hmm. the center it's a black box we don't understand how the beginning is translated to the end result that we have and that's maybe where i'm trying to highlight the murkiness in terms of an analogizing experience of multiple people to objective truth because if multiple people's brain chemistry can I don't want to say misfire because that implies that something is incorrect or not happening properly. But if somebody's brain chemistry fires different in a way that causes them to see something different, then they therefore are going to have a different experience. And if this happens across multiple people, we now have 
essentially two forms of quote unquote truth. Not exactly, because we're always so we're always in pursuit of the truth as a central tenant that exists beyond, above, below and before us. And right, so right. when when I have an experience of something, some phenomenon, and all seven billion of us have an experience of ostensibly the same phenomenon, but some of us experience it one way, some of us experience it another. Yes, that raises very interesting questions about photons, about retina, about brain chemistry, it raises a bunch of interesting questions about consciousness itself, but it doesn't raise any questions about what we mean when we say objective transcendent truth, because that is always a pointer to that thing that unites us as a concept. It's a pointer to that thing. And so if we, if, as a, as a, as a definition, it's a pointer to that thing. So if we have a disagreement about what is true, it means neither one of us have it generally kind of not exactly. You know, may, I, I could have something yeah. close. I could have something closer to it than you or you could have something closer to it than me. Uh, you know, we, we never really have it. And so. To, to, to get the brain chemistry, no, the, the brain chemistry is there and it does cause murkiness when you've got two people looking at the same thing, and experiencing it differently uh, in some concept context in other contexts it's glorious because that's the beauty of art and music is that i can right. listen to a song i can look at a painting i have one experience to me i say i say death and war when i look at this painting and listen to this song and you say birth and redemption when you listen to the same song look at the same painting uh, and this right. is this is the chemical problem that you pointed out earlier uh that's part of the murkiness of it and it, that's a beautiful part of it I completely agree that it's beautiful and I maybe just should have specified that it doesn't actually make what the truth actually is murky. Just like exactly like you said, it just shows that we both don't have it. I guess it just, it's that step from humans saying we're looking to we are confident and make a decision this way. That's where I think the murkiness appears, which I think mm. you perfectly highlighted by saying it just shows that neither of us have it if that murkiness is still there. And we can, and, and here's where, here's where power comes into play. The idea that is and behavior that and the idea and the behavior that is a resultant, the, uh, the most direct result of that idea that is most powerful will prosper and will move further and will go longer. So if if the way that I'm conceiving truth in this moment is more powerful than the way you're conceiving it my conception will go further and will move more people. If the way you're perceiving it, the, if the way that the, the song and the art and the food and, and the light and the way all those things trigger in your brain is closer to what's true, ultimately true, capital T true, mm -hmm. then it will move more. It will go further. It will be more powerful and and it will it will wash over mine. And it will it will it will relegate mine to the dustbins of history. And this is how this is this is power, right? Yeah, but power doesn't necessarily equate to truth either. I mean, the whole idea of something like Gnosticism is kind of the idea that there's like a great knowledge which was lost by those exact processes that you were talking about. Yes, so knowledge, way, knowledge is power. Knowledge is power. Truth is power. 
There's power. There's there's power in in, in that murkiness. And so the, the 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 way you raised the murkiness was as a problem, right? It's a problem that there's this murkiness, and I think nature offers us a solution to this murky problem in the form of power. Where if if I've got some perception and some chemical, and then you've got some perception and some chemical, how do we reconcile? Uh, you know, and it's it's through power ultimately that it's reconciled. Uh, now, I would argue that we should have this. We should have power reconcile without violence. Power and violence aren't one of the same. Uh, but you can have you can have power move without violence, and let that also guide us toward. Let that be also be a referee towards truth is that possible is that a thing but it doesn't if we come full circle to the example of the politician who didn't make any action because what he believed was true that seems like a perfect example as to how it's not nature's reconciliation it's a flaw of us because we're a part of nature but how did he get to power he convinced a lot because of people to put him there if he was elected Oh, I was actually thinking about power in the sense of thinking that he was being a powerful. Yeah, that is a good different side of it. I was just more thinking about him as an individual being empowered to make a decision. Didn't even think about him being elected by others to have been put into that position of power as well. Yeah, that's the way I'm thinking about the power in this dynamic, because because the, the problem you point out is clear and I, I hear it totally is that we can look at the same thing and have very and come to very different conclusions. This is a deep problem. Um, it's a very deep problem. And I think one way that nature is solving it is power. Because um, if, if <laughs> believe you me, if me and Oprah have different opinions about something, well, <laughs> guess what? My, my opinion doesn't matter as much on that specific topic. <laughs> I should just go and move on to another topic and try to form an opinion there. Uh, that's just one solution that that uh, nature has offered to this very real dilemma that you've that you've pointed out is that things can strike us differently and the brain is is complex and we don't fully understand it i'm glad you are very good about putting your solutions in the frame of reference of one solution among several because i feel like oftentimes i try to look at solutions it's just such one size fits all and it's a good practice that you always have of making sure that they're regulated to be part of a tool belt and not the um, carte blanche magic staff that you know gets wielded around aggressively so yeah thanks yeah, but I, I think that comes from being pounded uh as a one-trick pony for basic income and so uh <laughs> because i am a one-trick pony for basic income and so i'm just constantly hit back with well no magic wands right yeah 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 no magic wands that's fucking funny. No, oh, that was good. I think on that laugh, that's a good enough place to end it. That's <laughs> funny, dude. Wow. <laughs> yeah, great stuff, man. Uh, thank you for pointing this book out. Uh, the Varieties of Scientific Experience by Carl Sagan. Yeah, you know, honestly, I don't know how I stumbled onto this book. I knew I wanted a Sagan book, and I'm really glad I found this one, too. I, I think it's going to be my recommendation for anybody who's starting down the path of looking for truth outside of the standard receptacles i think uh, this is a good starting point yeah it was a good one i didn't realize i didn't realize how many of my ideas were actually trite uh, i didn't realize how many of my ideas were put into the zeitgeist by carl and others like him 
decades ago. And I thought I was much more inventive than I am <laughs> before Weird. reading this. So, Dude, we're standing on the shoulders of giants yeah. and Sagan is absolutely And it's good. Them. It's a good thing. It's a good bit of humility. I always yeah. appreciate that, especially from such a guy who's uh doesn't make you feel so demeaned, right? Like he's truly one of those communicators that's just uh contributes as an equal, and I love that. Yep. JP next month? Dude, I'm actually hyped on that because it's an audiobook and that means that I can be like actually keeping up with the reading, so I'm super nice. stoked. Only the first six. Only the first six rules. Okay. Yep. 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 I think uh, I want to do a Terrence McKenna book because I've really dived into him lately, and that'll be the next one. So I'll start looking for that too. Sweet. All right, man. J- on to JP. Thanks for the good talk. Uh, I'll uh, talk to you in a couple weeks. Talk to you in a couple weeks. Sounds good, bud. Talk Bye-bye. to you later, bud. Bye. It ain't barely 8.53. I know it.